I wish I had an accent like Derek. <laughs> Don't you? And his moustache. I've been trying to work the courage up to go for the moustache, but not yet. Well, let me add my happy Mother's Day to you, to those wishes that have already gone out. Um, you might be a cynical person going, ah, oh, it's just a commercial thing, why bother? Sure, maybe, but it's good and right that as we gather, not because of mothers, but around Jesus, as you'll see, but as we gather, we do honour motherhood and women, because the Bible does. The Bible says that woman is the glory of man. There is a glory about woman that man doesn't have, says the Bible. And so, really good to be together to do that. And I've got a Mother's Day gift for you, okay? Here it is. There they are. Now, I even clipped my toenails for the occasion. And thankfully, the photo doesn't show the fungus that's getting out of control in between the toes. I uh, showered bare feet at a caravan park a few months ago, and you know how that goes. How can, how can these hairy, dirty, ordinary feet be a gift to you this morning, not just to you mothers, but to all of you? Well, because of a verse that we come to in this part of the Bible, which says, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. <laughs> Friends, these feet really are beautiful this morning because they're attached to a head with a gob that is going to point you to the most wonderful news you can hear, the most beautiful news that you can hear. And the way that I want to get to this news is through one verse that's in this part of the Bible, chapter 10, verse 4. We just work through the Bible week to week. I want to do one verse and show you how it is so beautiful. Chapter 10, verse 4, if you've got your Bible, have a look at it, otherwise it's on the screen. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. There is the good news. There is the beautiful news. But of course, it takes some unpacking, which is what I want to do with us this morning, because this verse actually captures much of the message and movement in the Bible, the whole Bible that has come before it, which is a good two-thirds of it. In my Bible, there's 1,229 pages that have come before this verse. This verse, all of those, th those previous verses have been heading to, and it sums them up. My plan is to take you through those 1,200 pages quite quickly. So if, if you are here this morning wondering what the Old Testament's about, what the Bible's about, it would take you two or three days straight to read it. I'm going to give it to you in about 20 minutes, Okay. But firstly, just a few words in that sentence to unpack before we go there. Christ. Christ is the title given to Jesus. Jesus Christ as God's King of all kings. Culmination. It's not a word that we use very often in our language. But this word is getting at the end and goal of something. Like the finish line in an athlete's race. Right? The finish line in a running race marks the end. It's finished. There's no more race past the finish line. But it's more than that. It's the goal of the race. The whole point of running has been to get to that end. And so Jesus Christ is the end, the goal of the law. We'll unpack that as we go through. So that there may be righteousness 
for everyone who believes. Now, righteousness here means a right standing with God. So that as God looks down on his world, he's able to say, that man, that woman is mine, is right with me as the judge of the universe. Jesus Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Let me show you who, how the, the, the Bible that has come prior to that leads us to this point. Now, this is a bit of a previously in the Bible, okay? Five steps, very quick, all the way back to the start. If you've got a Bible, free, feel free to turn there, otherwise they'll come up on the screen. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God... Pause there. Your view of God determines the way that you see everything else. Your view of God determines the way that you view everything else. If you believe there is no God, that you, me, us are just the product of random chance and blind forces and just a bunch of chemicals in a bag of skin, we're just happy accidents, that will radically change the way that you view all of life, everything in life. And particularly about what the goal, the point, the purpose of your life is. Well, the Bible makes really clear from the first few words, in the beginning, God. There is a God. There always has been and will be a God. He is eternal. He is before creation. He depends on no one or nothing. He is the mighty creator of all things. And he's more than just mighty. He's personal. He's concerned for an intimate relationship with his creation and particularly humanity, the high point of his creation. See, as you read the first couple of chapters of Genesis, you see that God makes a garden, a garden, a beautiful garden, where he places the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, to enjoy intimate relationship with himself. And it uses the beautiful language of he would walk in the cool of the day with our first parents. This is a God who is mighty and powerful, who is personally involved with his creation. There's the first step, a key step. There is a God who's created all things, who's Lord over Lord, over all, who is concerned for a personal relationship. Second step, tragically comes very quickly, chapter 3. And it's called the fall. It's called the fall because it's where humanity fall from grace into sin. Adam and Eve fail to trust God's word and rebel against him with the deepest of consequences flowing from that. Let me point you to one of them, chapter 3, verse 16, which particularly speaks to motherhood. Having disobeyed God, he says, verse 16, to the woman, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now we say happy Mother's Day, but you've just got to talk to a mother to work out much of motherhood is anything but happy, anything but easy. Right? It was so good to hear from Sam to express some of that. I mean, think about the stress involved for a woman, even before there's a child, there's anxiety about, will I have a child? 
There's anxiety before conceiving. Then there's conception and you're now carrying a child and the stress increases because what's this child going to be like? What, what world are they coming into? How am I going to go as a mum? Then, of course, comes the delivery of the child. Now, I've been through that four times. Um, not in the same way as my wife has, of course. But although for number three, he was in such a hurry, I played the role of mid-husband in the lounge room. I just caught him. <coughs> Nothing to it. And so I, I've first-hand experienced the severe pains of labour. But the pains don't end there, do they? And I don't just mean physically, like jumping on the trampoline will never be the same again. Um, but there's an emotional, just as my wife walks down, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, she loves this. You're a good sport. There's the emotional pain. There's, there's now multiple versions of your heart out there walking around in the world in your children. As they experience pain, you experience pain. You experience your own struggles and shortcomings. Mum guilt, anyone? The marriage relationship, the family relationship isn't straightforward. Why is all this the case? Because the Bible is diagnosing and actually pronouncing judgment upon a world that has rejected God. This is what life outside of the garden looks like. Life having thrown off the rule of God. It makes sense of the world we live in. The, the judgment continues to Adam, which makes sense of our experience in work. It's going to be frustrated. Your work won't be the dreamy holiday that you'd love it to be. The things that you work hard to create will be quickly undone. You clean the house, the kids come home. You, you build something and rot starts to set in. Then there's the ultimate frustration of our life, death. Death is not a natural part of life. No one dies of natural causes. Rather, it is God's judgment upon sin. And he says to Adam, from dust you are taken, to dust you will return. I walked into the shops yesterday with my mask, that's right, here we are again, and to just see everyone, to see you now, it, it's this shocking reminder, isn't it? Oh, that's right, we're still in the middle of a global pandemic. We've been able to live as though it's kind of out there and someone else's problem, that's right, it's still among us. Every funeral, every death is a reminder, that's right. We live in a world outside the garden. We share in the nature and the behaviours of our first parents in throwing off the rule of God. We live under the plague of sin. There's the second movement, a key movement. And it actually introduces a key problem that the Bible continues to play out. And that is, how can a righteous God dwell among unrighteous sinners because they don't mix they can't mix it's like oil and water yet he longs to which takes us to the third step the third movement which is one of promise see God is compassionate in his nature he longs to extend mercy 
And so he makes a series of promises, the first one actually hot on the heels of Adam and Eve's rejection, where he makes a promise that through Eve, through her womb, through her line, will come one who will destroy the enemy of sin and death, who will crush it. Now, it doesn't come in the next generation, though they might have been looking for it. In fact, the next generation demonstrates how broken we are. There's murder as one of Eve's son kills the other. So, time rolls on, the generations roll on. Another man shows up called Abraham. You might have heard his name in the reading. And God takes this man, Abraham, and promises that he will bring blessing, he will bring salvation through his line. And Abraham says, looks around in the mess of his world and goes, okay, I believe you, God. And the Bible says that God counts that as his righteousness, as being right with God. He's not righteous, but by taking God at his word, he's counted to be. This will be key for us. So through Abraham comes Israel, the nation of Israel, the Jews. Then we come to the fourth movement. But let me summarise the point so far. Humanity has rejected God and has no hope of saving itself, no hope of getting right with God again. Sin has plunged us below the waterline. We can't rise above it. We need saving from without. Who does that leave? It leaves the very God that we've wronged yet he's merciful and he's promised to do it. But the next step is one that's given to show just how much we need saving from without, and it's the step of law. Now, amongst other things, the law serves as an important teaching aid. Now, this law is given through Moses. You might have heard of him. You might have heard of the Ten Commandments. There's many other laws, but the Ten Commandments are a bit of a summary of these laws. And God says to the people of Israel this, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Catch that? There is blessing to be had. There is right standing with God to be had. How? If you obey me fully and keep my covenant. God introduces a covenant of law a way of relating to the people of Israel that is based on their obedience, their law-keeping to enjoy the righteousness of God. So among other things, as God gives the law through Moses, it functions like a ladder to God. So that as you would keep these laws, you would climb up the rungs. If you would keep them fully, perfectly, you would climb your way to a right standing with God. How do you think Israel went with this? Well, like Hugh Hefner would go up being faithful to one wife, which is actually the language the Bible uses to describe it. They prostitute themselves out. They're harlots to other gods. The story of Israel is one that teaches humanity can't climb the ladder to God because our nature, which is turned in on itself, which is against God's word, won't keep his perfect standard. So actually, bound up in the giving of the law was another function, another intent. Rather than being a ladder that you would actually climb, it was to serve as a mirror, 
a mirror that would give a true reflection into who you are and how far short you fell of God's standard. God gave the law to emphasise the point that we can't be righteous on our own, that we need a rescuer. Now, just as an aside, motherhood kind of functions like the law. See, mums, you know the ideal of motherhood that you long to reach. You know the way that you want to engage with your children humbly and gently and patiently and compassionately, selflessly. You know that ideal. And some days, for some moments, you hit it. But you know that much of the time you fall short of the ideal you know is built into motherhood. Motherhood reveals your unrighteousness, as does fatherhood and brotherhood and sisterhood. It reveals your need for rescue, for perfect righteousness that would be given to you. This brings us to the fifth step, the final point before we get to Romans chapter 10 verse 4, which is a new covenant. What Israel needed, what humanity needed was a new covenant, a new way of relating to God where right standing before him is not based on our perfect law keeping because we'll stuff it over and over again. But rather, it'll be based on forgiveness. And so, Jesus enters our world. The one through whom all things were made, the one who flung stars into galaxies, enters into the womb of a young woman and is born to bring the new covenant. This is his words on the eve of his death. He's sharing a meal with his disciples and he's breaking bread, passing wine around and he he says, look, this wine is actually going to symbolise what's going on here. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Righteousness will come to sinners not by law-keeping, but by a new covenant, which is the way of forgiveness, which is achieved how? Well, pick up the New Testament accounts, the Gospel accounts, and read the life of Jesus, I dare you. I mean, he's changed the world like no one else. He's changed the lives like of people like no one else. And as you read him, you see, here is a man, a, a very real man, a human. You see, he grows and learns. He gets tired and hungry. He experiences stress and rejection and loss. He battles temptation to sin, to break the laws of God. But here's the difference. He never does. He never does. He only ever loves the Lord God with all his heart, soul, mind and strength. How have you gone with that just this week? See, Jesus comes and like, unlike you and I, unlike Adam and Eve, he lives a sinless life, a righteous life. So that when the record of it were to be opened in the heavenly courts and God were to say, why should I let you into my presence? You just open the book of Jesus. Every attitude and action, everything that he's done has 
being perfect before God. And the key for us here is, part of that book is his willingness to die a substitutionary death. See, as he speaks about the cup there, the wine, it symbolises his blood that will be spilled. He's talking about his death on a cross. Now, we read earlier that death comes into our world because Adam and Eve throw off the rule of God, as it comes for everyone else who shares their nature, who acts in the same way. So why has Jesus died? Not for his sin. Not because he is unrighteous, but because he is willingly and lovingly stepping into the place of the unrighteous. And as he dies on the cross, he is absorbing in himself God's just punishment for lawbreakers, for the unrighteous. An eternal punishment poured out on Jesus. And because of who he is, the eternal son of God, he is able in his death to absorb it fully. But it destroys him. Why? Why is he doing this? Well, this brings us to Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Because Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Jesus is the finish line, the end of the law of Moses. You don't have to keep the Ten Commandments to be right with God, because no one ever did. That way was never going to work. But he's also the goal of the law of Moses because it was highlighting our problem, our need for a rescuer, our inability to atone for our sins and pointing us to another way. Jesus, the one who did live a righteous life in our place. Jesus is God's solution for lawbreakers to be righteous. Catch that. Jesus is God's solution for lawbreakers to be righteous, not because God goes, all right, I'm merciful and I'm going to forgive and forget. It doesn't. No, that would be unjust. That would be wicked. So Jesus absorbs your punishment so that you don't have to. Jesus died under the judgment of God so that you don't have to. Jesus was raised to life, showing that his death worked, showing that he has victory over sin and death. Jesus is God's solution for lawbreakers to be righteous. How do we get that? Because it's not automatic. Well, come back to Romans chapter 10 if you're not already there. The last chapter 9 and 10 have been ruling out ways that you don't get it. So I want to be really clear on this. How can you sit here this morning, how can you walk out these doors confident that you have right standing with God. Confident that the day that you stand before him as judge, he will welcome you into his presence. How can you be confident of that? Well, firstly, this part of the Bible rules out ways that you won't get it. Okay, here's how you don't get it. Number one, not by heritage. That was the point of chapter 9 that we looked at last week. You aren't right with God simply because the, the place, the position, the family that you were born into. It's not because you were born into a Christian family that you can go on through life confident that God will accept you. 
it doesn't happen by osmosis, you know, like if you just get up close enough to the really Christian type who do the heavy lifting of following Jesus, that if you're close enough to them, God will let you into. You won't be right with God because you went to a Christian school. You won't be right with God because you went to youth group, church. It won't be because of your ethnicity. That was chapter 9 that makes really clear you have no righteousness simply because of your heritage. Second thing that gets ruled out here is chapter 9, verse 30. It's not by works. It's not by your efforts. See, verse 30 to 32 are contrasting two ways to approach righteousness. One by the Gentiles, who were non-Jews, who didn't have the law of Moses, yet find righteousness. And the Jews, who had the law of Moses, yet didn't. Have a look at verse 31. The people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. Flip over to chapter 10, verse 3. They did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. You see what's being said there? Two approaches to righteousness. Here's the one that doesn't work. It's the one that is self-righteous. It's the one that looks to yourself and your performance and any laws that you've kept so that God will be satisfied to accept you. Now, in our day, for most of us, I don't think we're walking around going, gee, I've got to live according to the Ten Commandments to be right with God. Possibly some generations prior have thought that way, but for most of us, we're not worrying about the law of Moses. It's a different kind of self-righteousness in our day. And it's the one that just goes, well, I'm a pretty decent person. And so God will accept me because I'm pretty decent. And we, we do that thing about, okay, here's the big things I haven't done. You know, I haven't murdered, I haven't raped, I haven't held a servo up at gunpoint. And then we look at the things that I have done. Well, I am a mum who's poured myself out at great cost to my family. Okay, surely God will kind of look at my life and weigh up all the good and bad, and as long as the good outweighs the bad, I'll be right with him. It's typically how we think about self-righteousness. What are we banking on there? Ourselves. That we've got enough good to outweigh the bad that'll satisfy God. We think there's a lot worse people in the world, so surely God will be okay with me. But the problem with that way of thinking is our reference point. Right? Um, are there any jimbles in the house? I see one down here, I see another over here. There's a bunch here. The jimbles, uh, terrible ocean swimmers, is it just ladies? Just ladies. Who get down how often a week to go swimming? A few times a week. So if me and Nicole were to go down to Terrigal Beach and have a race to Goldie and back, my odds are on Nicole. I don't do the ocean swimming thing. Especially when you go, it's three laps to Goldie and back. Okay? Nicole wins, I lose. But if the finish line, if the goal is New Zealand, no hope. Do you see the thing there? Like, it depends what... Your reference point is, 
You won't be found right with God if you are depending on your own efforts. Because when held up against the standard that they need to be, you'll see how far short you fall. What's the standard that it needs to be? Jesus. Jesus. See, Jesus brings salvation. Jesus is the culmination of the law, but he also functions in the same way as a mirror. You read Jesus and see how your life stacks up compared to his. When he's tired and hungry and stressed, as he deals with opposition, as he engages with the poor and the outcast and the needy, you compare your life to Jesus... You will not sit here or walk out of this room because of anything that you have done or think that you will do to impress God to accept you. Here's the third thing that the passage says. It's not. It's not. Righteousness is not by passion or sincerity. Chapter 10, verse 2. Speaking of the Israelites, I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. That, is a, that ought to be a sobering thought for churchgoers especially. That is, the people of Israel, who were so passionate and zealous for the things of God, might find themselves eternally condemned. What? See, it's not about how much stamina or how much passion or how much excitement you have for the things of God. But rather, it's knowledge. Their zeal was not based on knowledge, not based on truth. You can be as sincerely devoted as you like to the things of God, but if it's not based on truth, well, you'll be shown to be sincerely wrong. Every religion that worships a God other than the Lord Jesus Christ may well be zealous, sincere, devoted, but that worship is not based on knowledge, on truth. It cannot provide the righteousness we need before God. Even those who do gather around the name of Jesus, but think the way to righteousness is our passion and excitement, it's not founded on truth. Which brings us to what it is, to how, how you get it. How do you sit here, how do you walk out of here today confident that you are right with God? Well, chapter 10, verse 4 tells us it's only by faith and only in Jesus. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. There it is. Now, belief there is more helpfully translated for us in our time as trust, for everyone who trusts. Because our problem with belief, it's kind of got this attachment to this superstitious spiritual substance. So that an athlete is born with plenty of speed and agility and an artist is born with flair and creativity and a religious person is born with faith. No, no, no. That's not faith. That's not belief that will get you righteousness. It's trust which is to look away from yourself it's got nothing to do with what you possess with what you've done and it's got everything to do with who you look to what is it who is it that you are to trust in verse 9 
if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe and trust in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's to trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ that will make you righteous as you sit here this morning and leave here today. That Jesus lived the perfect life I haven't lived, but he did it in my place. That there might be righteousness able to be counted as mine. That Jesus went to his death to absorb the judgment of God that I deserve so that I might be free from it. It would destroy me. It destroyed Jesus instead. To trust that God raised him from the dead, victorious over sin and death, that that too is my hope. How do you get this righteousness? By looking to and trusting in Jesus, in this one, in what he's done for you. Righteousness comes from God, not from us. To the person who would look away from themselves and to him. Who's it for? Well, that's one of the other big points this passage is making. It's for any and everyone who would look to him. The Jew and Gentile. The sinner who's been the more respectable type and the one who's just been warts and all out there. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Christianity is the most exclusive and inclusive religion on the planet. The most exclusive because it says the only way to be right with God is through Jesus. Jesus alone. The most inclusive because it says anyone and everyone, no matter who you are or what you've done, if you would look to him, trust to him, you will be saved. This is why these hairy, fungus feet are the most beautiful feet you could hope for today. It's got nothing to do with them or the person they're attached to. It's got everything to do with pointing you to the God who has loved you, who has come for you in his son Jesus. Do you know right standing with God? Don't let another moment, another day go by without responding to him. Here he is holding his hands out to you. I actually want to pause here and give you the opportunity to respond to that offer of righteousness. Just with a simple prayer to him that you would repeat after me in your own heart, which essentially says, sorry and change me doesn't matter how long you've been in church. doesn't matter if people in your family have thought that you are right with God, but you know deep inside that you're not. Take this moment to put your trust in a saviour. Pray with me. Lord God, like Adam and Eve, I've failed to trust and obey you. I fail to live up to my own standards, let alone your perfect law. I am sorry. Would you forgive me as I trust in your son that he died for me? Give me his righteousness, please.
and change and transform me to be a person of righteousness, to be more like Jesus. Amen. If you have said those words to God this morning, heaven rejoices along with God Almighty. Do something about that. Let somebody know. Uh, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, this is not something just to be carried in the, the private life, but something to actually let people know about. But let me say one more thing in finishing up, particularly for mothers. Uh, Mum guilt. Um, However you are going or have gone as a mother, this morning is a reminder to look to the beauty of Christ's righteousness covering you. Count it as yours. You stand before the Lord God holy, without blemish, free from accusation because of Christ, because you continue to look to him. Let any mum guilt that you carry drive you to the cross. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And finally, to particularly the younger mums among us, who do tend to have more beautiful feet than blokes, but catch how your feet can be truly beautiful to the kids that God has entrusted you with. We are on a mission to bring this good news to the coast, to the country and beyond. That mission starts in our homes. And so just have a look at verse 4. And though originally addressing a different group of people, it's right that you insert your kids. And if you don't have kids... You do have kids as you belong to this church, our kids, our EV kids. Verse 14, how then can they, your kids, call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they, your kids, believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they, our kids, hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent, as it is written... How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. What a role the Lord God has called you to, Christian mums. What an opportunity you have. And isn't that window so short? Some of you haven't figured it out yet. I'm at this point where at this point where we're starting to figure it out. It just goes like that. Make the most of it. What are the priorities in your life that functionally show what you are concerned for most for your kids? Has sport crept in to take first place? Is it music? Is it travel? Is it whatever? The biggest thing that they need is the news of Jesus brought to them patiently, persistently, bit by bit through every messy meal and moment. The beautiful news that they need a saviour, that God loves them so much and has provided one in Jesus. Continue on, mothers, to point our kids to the good news of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father God, we, we thank you so much for the love that you have shown to an unlovely people.
We're amazed that you would do this for us. We ought to be amazed that you would do this for us. And so forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for the ways that we so easily do compare ourselves to the wrong standard and so feel self-righteous, believe we're self-righteous. Humble us, please. Show us our need. Drive us to the cross. We pray for our mothers particularly this morning and thank you for them again and ask that you might give them your spirit, your grace to undertake this massively important role of bringing their kids up in the things of Jesus. We pray particularly for those who are doing it on their own that you might give them a double portion of your grace. We pray for us as a church that we might be so concerned for our kids, for the next generation, to point them to Jesus, to see them raised in those things and to go out like us and bring this news to the coast, the country and the world. We pray that this might happen for the fame of your son. We pray it in his name. Amen.